Our scripture this morning is Psalm 5. So I invite you, if you have a copy of scripture, to follow along there. It will also be on the screens behind me. Psalm 5, it's a David psalm for us this morning. Listen, God. Please pay attention. Can you make sense of these ramblings, my groans, and my cries? King God, I need your help. Every morning you'll hear me at it again. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and I watch for fire to descend. You don't socialize with wicked or invite evil over as your house guest. Hot air boaster collapses in front of you. You shake your head over mischief maker. God destroys the lie speaker. Bloodthirsty and truth bender disgust you. And here I am, your invited guest. It's incredible. I enter your house. Here I am, prostrate in your inner sanctum, waiting for directions to get me safely through enemy lines. Every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Pile on the guilt, God. Let their so-called wisdom wreck them. Kick them out. They've had their chance. But you'll welcome us with open arms when we run for cover to you. Let the party last all night. Stand guard over our celebration. You are famous, God, for welcoming God-seekers, for decking us out in delight. The word of God for the people of God. Pray with me. Loving God, it is because of your unfailing love for us that we worship you this morning, and that we can bring to you our failings and our despair over the ongoing troubling events affecting our lives and the lives of our neighbors around the world. Today we bring to you our anxieties and ask that you will strengthen and encourage us to come through this time of despair and disorientation. We come to you to pour out our pleas for guidance, just like the psalmist prayed. And, O Lord, hear us as we pray. Pay attention to our groanings. Listen to our cries for help. We trust, God, that you will hear and answer us in ways that are in accordance with your will and your plan. We pray this morning for our South Dakota mission team as they begin their week of ministry and service on Pine Ridge Reservation. We pray that you'll bless and deepen our relationships with our partners and with our Lakota brothers and sisters whom we love dearly. May hearts be open and conversations drenched with the aroma of your love, and so you are recognized and glorified. Our hearts are burdened this morning for those in Orlando dealing with the grief of violence there. We pray, God, for your strong sense of comfort and peace to be among them, and for the church to rise up to care, for us to be a light in a world where there is so much darkness. We pray, God, that you would allow us to shine your grace and your peace and hope brightly. And faithful God, in the past you blessed and guided us, and for this we give you our sincere thanks. We give with generous and grateful hearts this morning, not a portion, but all that we are and all that we have, knowing it belongs to you. We pray that you use them to reveal your kingdom here and now. And compassionate God, it is because of their unfailing love that we rejoice and that we trust in you. Bless the remainder of our time together as we worship and as we grow in our understanding of what a good God you are. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so sit up straight. 
Stop slouching. Both, you actually are doing it. Thank you. That is good. Both feet on the floor, right? Some of you, when I'm saying those things, your mother's voice is in the, is right there. And you had no control but what to do that, right? It was drilled into you when you were younger. Those are but a few of the marching orders of proper posture. When we were our senior trip uh, last week in Virginia, we had a conversation one night around the dinner table about the no elbows on the table rule. And we really didn't have any idea where that rule came from, but we took a few guesses uh, about why it might be. Maybe some of you have heard the old uh, phrase or saying, Mabel, Mabel, keep your elbows off the table. This is not a horse's table. This is a fine dining table. Yeah, anyone? Like, I'm not dating myself. Nope. All right, okay. Some of you like I did. I just heard it now, all right? Um, So apparently German Chancellor Angela Merkel has never heard of this because this is a picture of her at a dinner with Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. And yep, those are elbows on the fancy dining table right there. Maybe in Germany they don't know of Mabel. So, you know, we talked about it and we took a few guesses as to why maybe this was a, a proper posture rule. And in the end, most of us decided that it really was just stupid. And so we shoveled food into our mouth like pigs at a trough. You know, over the years, I've been instructed and commanded a lot about proper posture. Um, I tend to slouch. If you came into my office and saw me working at a computer, it would look like I have a 40-pound monkey on my shoulders. I don't know why that is. I've got the keyboard. If it's too far away, I won't be able to type. If I'm sitting at home, I tend to like, put my legs up underneath me and lean on the left side while I'm doing something on the couch. And over years, not following proper posture can lead to some being out of balance, and every once in a while my body will kindly and gently remind me that it's time to go see our friend, the chiropractor. And as annoying annoying as it can be, proper posture really does help, but not just physical posture. You know, posture does mean an, an attitude or adjustment of the body, but it also means our attitude or adjustment in how we perceive something, how we, um, live how we do our life. So not only is physical posture important for living well, but so is mental posture and emotional posture and even spiritual posture. And if any of those things are not taken care of, we can get a little out of balance. Our bodies get out of balance, our hearts and our minds get out of balance, and our faith can get out of balance too. You know, Psalm 5 is rich with language about posture. And in the message translation, verses 2 and 3 read, Every morning, you'll hear me at it again. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. And in verse 8, I enter your house, God, prostrate, which lying flat on the ground, facing the dirt, in your inner sanctum, waiting for directions. And in verse 11, you, God, will welcome us with open arms when we run to you for cover. There's so much beautiful language about posture. So as we prepare to listen to David in his prayer this morning, I want us to engage in a slight posture adjustment. Now, there will be no charge for this, and no one is going to come by later and pop anything back in place, so be careful. And I promise that we're not practicing some secret Eastern religion as well, so you can just breathe and relax. Our hands are miraculous in both design and function, they're really strong, but they also have a finesse to them. And they're not just tools that we use. We can recognize the power of a firm handshake that communicates trust and confidence. We recognize the power of a soft touch on a shoulder that says, I understand, 
and I'm with you. And we also understand the intimacy of walking hand in hand. Well, in yoga, hand positions are called mudras, and they're believed to just enhance the physical positions that you might take in yoga. It's believed that mudras help you just be present and peaceful and open and listening. So when palms are turned up, it kind of sh- the shoulders rotate outward and the chest opens. And when upward palms are used in prayer and meditation, they position both the mind and the body to pay attention, to listen. So by simply sitting at a desk or a table or in a pew and turning your hands over, up, and down, we can see and feel a little bit of the difference of how it helps our breathing or our positions. And the mind tends to respond in kind. So when we want to really listen to something, perhaps keeping our palms open to heaven would help us. One of my favorite authors, Bob Goff, talks about now in meetings, he sits with, at a desk or whatever, he'll sit with his hands on his legs with his palms open. And he finds he listens better that way and he's not so defensive. So may I suggest a simple posture change this morning, just for the rest of the sermon. I want to invite you to sit with your hands in your lap with your palms open and up. I know it feels awkward, but my general motto in life is to embrace the awkward. Run into the awkward. If you know me, I live that out. So I know you're feeling comfortable with it, but just try it. And perhaps if we practice a posture of openness with our bodies, that maybe our minds and our spirits will follow suit as well. Psalm 5 is known as a lament. And we often don't spend a lot of time focusing on the Psalms of lament, Uh, The modern Western church seems to be a little bit uncomfortable with the brutal honesty and some of the vulnerability of some of these psalms. However, there are more laments among the psalms than any other type of psalms. We don't tend to preach on them a lot, and a lot of our music and studies and those things tend to avoid them as well. Theologian Walter Brueggemann calls psalms of laments disorienting psalms. They're disorienting because the prayer comes from a place of discouragement and fear a place of frustration and even anger, a place where there isn't clarity on why something is happening and what or if God is even doing about it. So in Psalm 5, all is not well, and the faithful one, King David in this case, is being assaulted and terrorized by words. Now we don't really know exactly what words were being said or by whom, We just know that they were so threatening and disarming and hurtful to him that he had come before the Lord, prostrate to to say, this is the burden and the griefs and do something about it. And you all know, uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words, well, words can break our hearts and our spirits. Have you ever been hurt by words? Has anyone ever told lies about you? I think most of us have a moment where we've experienced that, where something has been said that hasn't been truthful or painful. Where and when did it come for you? Was it a coworker? Was it a classmate? A coach? A friend? Or even a family member? Did any of those lies that just hurt you and broke you come from within? Lies that you tell yourself about, I'm a failure. I don't measure up. I'm not enough. Maybe you've had a a time in your life when someone said words that were harmful to someone that you loved. Three years ago in July, this coming July, a good friend of mine went missing, uh, Chad Rogers. He went missing for about a week, and and, uh, he went out for a run, and he just never came home. 
that evening. And so a lot of uh, attention was focused on the story in Kansas City because hundreds of his friends, like me, went up and we looked and searched wooded areas and neighborhoods because we knew this was not like Chad. They ended up finding his body in a porta potty where he had gotten sick. We didn't know he had a heart problem. Got sick on his run, went to the, the bathroom, and he had a heart attack and died. And it was deeply hurtful to lose such a great friend and a wonderful young dad. But the thing that hurt the most were the words that were said online and in the news and from people who didn't even really know Chad. They made a lot of assumptions about Chad because he had a lot of tattoos and gauges in his ear. He was a stay-at-home dad, and some previous job situations led people to believe and say a lot of things that weren't true. Things like, well, he was abandoning his wife and his son, or he was clearly doing drugs, or he had committed some crime and he had left to avoid the consequences of it. People asked me if any of those things were true about Chad, and Chad's dad asked me to talk to the police and vouch for his character, and I didn't hesitate. Because I knew Chad, I knew his heart, I knew who he was and how he loved the Lord. And it was deeply hurtful to hear those things said about him. It hurt deeply to hear the lie speakers, the bloodthirsty, the truth benders spreading their lies about my friend. And just like King David, we found ourselves going before the Lord in the morning, praying for his mercy and his love, and for him to pour and pile the guilt on those who were speaking falsely, praying for God to show them the errors of their ways and to make them stop. When you think about how words hurt you or someone you love, you can understand David's posture of crying out to God, asking for him to intervene and for justice. You can see yourself laying out flat on the ground, face in the dirt, begging him to make things right for God to silence them and to pile on the guilt. It's proper posture when you're grieving and you're frustrated and you're disoriented. We must also ask the question when we read Psalm 5, are we ever part of telling the lies? Are we ever the truth benders, the mischief makers? In stories in scripture, we're always really quick to see ourselves in the hero or the victim or the persecuted. I mean, no one watches Cinderella and says, you know what? I really see a lot of myself in the ugly stepsister. We always see ourselves in Cinderella or Prince Charming or some good character. But if we look at scripture, sometimes we need to humble ourselves enough to look at the mirror of it and say, is there any part of me? that is in the accused, the one who is doing the evil. And perhaps an election year is a good chance for us just to look and to see if we're playing one of those roles. Now, I want you to look down, make sure your palms are still open, you didn't clench them during that last whole segment. (laughs) All right? Keep them open. So many of the psalms of lament begin in despair, but they end in delight. They make the journey. And Psalm 5 is no different. If you look at verses 11 and 12, the end of this psalm, it says this again. But you'll welcome us, God, with open arms when we run to cover for you. Let the party last all night. Stand guard over our celebration. You are famous, God, for welcoming God-seekers, for decking us out in delight. David trusts that he is welcome to come out into the courts of God in the morning and lay everything out, all of his grievances, all of his worries, 
and be honest with God. He, he knows that it's safe to go to the king and do that. What he doesn't do is stay there. He doesn't curl up in a fetal position and surrender to his enemies. He ends with proclaiming the goodness of the Lord despite present circumstances. He finishes by reorienting himself again to the truth that God is trustworthy above all situations that he might face. David places his hands out, palms up, in surrender, but not to his enemies, to his God. This week I posted a question on Facebook asking people to share about trusting God and if it was difficult for them, and if so, why? And I was overwhelmed with all the responses I got, both in comments and in messages, where people shared their stories about the challenges of trusting God, which was the overall theme. Um, So many people just responded, too, that they were blessed by reading what other people had written, that reading about their own experiences encouraged them. And I learned from some of the, those who are what we call chronologically gifted, meaning older and wiser, uh, that they would give testimony that the longer they've lived, the more times they've seen God be faithful and it was, had become easier to trust him. And boy, that's wisdom for those of us who still have more years to come uh, to learn that. So sharing those stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, all of that encourages us and it reminds us of what a good, faithful, trustworthy God that we have. But one of the clear themes that came through those that it was difficult to trust God because it feels like we're out of control. So many of us are control freaks. Okay. Now don't point, don't elbow anybody. That is improper posture. All right, don't do it. Just sit and think about it. So many of us struggle with control, and that makes trusting God very, very difficult. When times are difficult or plans don't go the way that we thought they would, or we simply can't see what God is doing, we find ourselves starting to scramble. We become disoriented, and we start grabbing. We grab at things, at bad habits, at people, anything that will give us some kind of sense of safety and security. And, but is that really what we need? We ask God for clarity. If you just give me clarity, everything would be okay. But is that really what we need? When the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta, he was seeking clarity. He was seeking an answer to what God wanted him to do with his life. And so the first morning he was there, he met Mother Teresa, and she asked, well, what can I do for you, John? And he asked her to pray for him. Well, what do you want me to pray for? And he voiced that request that he'd brought all the way from the States, pray that I have clarity. And sweet little Mother Teresa said, no, I will not do that. And he asked her, why? Why won't you do that? Uh, Everything I look at you, clarity seems to be the thing that you have. And Mother Teresa laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. And that is what I will pray for you. Trust. Could it be that craving clarity, in that doing that, we're attempting to just avoid the risk of trusting God? Clarity. Could it be that it's just another sense of false security rather than just trusting God? When all else is unclear and enemies are besieging us from within and without, the heart of trust says, as Jesus did on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is a posture of palms open in front of us, not desperately grabbing for answers, but open palms of surrender and trust. 
You see, clarity does not bring peace. We spend, some of us, our entire lives looking for it. But it doesn't bring peace. What brings peace is trust. My favorite author, Brennan Manning, said this in his book, Ruthless Trust. I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender and trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender and trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. The most urgent need we have is not clarity. Rather, it is an unfaltering trust in our God. See, David was the most beloved Jewish figure of Jewish history, and he went through all kinds of things, no stranger to terror and loneliness and attacks and failures. Yet he ravished the heart of God because of his unwavering trust. I want you to listen to some of his words from other psalms that he wrote. Psalm 56, when I am most afraid, I put my trust in you, God, in God whose words I praise. In God, I put my trust fearing nothing. What can men do to me? Psalm 26, my trust in God never wavers. Psalm 18, he rescued me since he loves me. Psalm 13, but I, for my part, rely on your love, O Lord. Psalm 40, happy the man who puts his trust in Yahweh. Psalm 52, I, for my part, like an olive tree growing in the house of God, put my trust in God's love forever and ever. I mean to thank you, God, for doing what you did. And I put my trust in your name that is so full of kindness and the presence of those who love you. Behold the splendor of a human heart who trusts that he is loved. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, Melissa, I, I struggle with trusting. I can't really trust God. Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. The bad news for you type A's is that it really isn't something that you can do anything about. Growth in trust is not self-initiated. It, is something, it isn't something you can just grab hold of or conjure up as much as us type A's would like to do. It isn't a 10-step plan to trust God more by Friday book, although that might be out there, but I don't encourage you to buy it. Here's the good news. The good news is that trust happens as a result of allowing our unworthy, ungrateful selves to be loved as we are. You will trust God to the degree that you know you are loved by him. Hear that again? You will trust God to the degree that you know you are loved by him. Nothing has helped me more to trust God in my life than to be reminded over and over again how much he loves me with all my failures and sin and disgusting parts of me. God loves me. Nothing I can do about that. And with someone loving you that way, how can you not trust them? Trust is a palms-open approach. Stop trying to grab it. You're going to throw your back out. Just put palms out and open and trust that God loves you. Loves you. Because proper posture really does matter. In the words of the great theologian John Lennon, everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And in the meantime... Every morning and every night we lay our lives out on the altar before God. And with palms open, 
we receive this amazing love from a marvelous, generous, merciful God. Will you pray with me? God, we are a stubborn, stubborn people. We're independent. It's so hard for us to surrender in any way. It feels weak. And just like so many things that you turn on its head, surrender is the same way. It is actually so strong to go before you and to surrender our lives. Our hearts are yours. Take it all. We trust you. God, help us in our untrust. Help us to really believe and understand how much you love us so that we can respond to that and stop trying to earn it. God, we thank you that you are faithful through all things. Some in this room are going through those valleys. They're being besieged left and right by things that are hurtful and harmful and destroying and despairing. May they be encouraged by the words of David that we don't have to stay there. We can lay it out before you, be honest, but in the end, we have a God who's trustworthy despite anything that we will encounter. We praise you, God, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Our invitation to time is a time to respond for everyone. It's not necessarily about walking an aisle or coming up here. It's responding to what God is speaking to you. And some of us have some things we need to surrender, some things we need to lay out and allow God to take and to say, we trust you, God, that you've got this, and I don't have to be in charge. If you want to pray with someone, we'll be here at the front. We'll be glad to pray with you, or you can just pray at the altar, or you can do that from your seats. If you're looking for a church to be a part of, a church that's not perfect, that is us. We're messed up, but we have a very perfect God who loves us, and we would love to walk alongside you on that journey.